Well, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you all, my name is Jeff Wolstenum, and I'm one of the pastors here at Bethany Baptist Church, and I'll be bringing our word this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 27 through chapter 31. We're going to finish the book this morning. Well, if you didn't know this, we live in a transactional culture. It's, it's expected that we will be people who return the favor in one way or another when something good is done for us. If you go out to eat with someone and they buy your meal, you're likely going to feel the desire next time to buy theirs. If we're invited over to someone's house for dinner, we're going to ask, if, often we're going to ask if we can bring something. And, there, and there's, there's nothing wrong with this type of transactional nature, this, this reciprocal generosity. However, what often underlies that desire is it's a desire for independence. We, we don't want to feel indebted to someone else who, who bought our meal or who, is, who has brought us into their home to serve us dinner. And, and, and it's why so often for us, it can be difficult to receive blessings and, and generosity from others. And, and the, the transactional nature of our relationships goes well beyond anything that is financially regarded. It, it's also shaped by how we interact with each other. Our love for each other is often dependent upon how the other person receives me and responds to me. So if I'm nice to you and you're a jerk to me, well, the temptation for me is to think poorly of you and to not desire that relationship. And, and, and you're likely sympathetic with me in this area. You, you, nobody wants to be friends with a jerk. You don't want to help them when they're sick. You don't want to see them at church. You don't want to be in a community group with them. At an instinctual level of self-preservation, we try to avoid people who are jerks. Now, imagine if our relationship with the Lord worked in the same way. You know, Romans 5.8, a verse many people have probably memorized, Romans 5.8 doesn't say, while we were good and nice people, Christ died for us. But that instead what it says is, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Church, if God's love were depend, dependent upon our lovableness, well, then we'd all be condemned to die. But God's love isn't dependent upon our goodness, but upon His. It's why we think of God as being faithful. Because our response to God's faithfulness, to His commitment to us, is in no way can we transact that relationship in a way that's equal to what God has done. But it's to repent, to turn from our sin, to entrust ourselves to Him. And in so doing, we bind ourselves to him in such a way that he will not let go, even when we fail to trust him, even when we fail to believe his promises. God will not let us go because God's faithfulness extends beyond our failings. See, the transactional nature of our relationship with the Lord Jesus is that he died for us. Therefore, we belong wholly and fully to Him. We belong to Him, and He becomes our God. And He's faithful to us, even when we're not. So today, 
We come to the end of 1 Samuel. We've been working through this book sporadically since March. And in these final five chapters, we're going to see two kings that are in two dilemmas. The future King David and the current King Saul. And we will see through these dilemmas that there is one God with one deliverance. The book of 1 Samuel, it has a dramatic finale. And the author of 1 Samuel plays into that drama with how he lays out the story. So, so 27 through 31 is broken up very clearly. You have chapter 27, and then you have chapter 29 and 30. And those follow David and his dilemma. Actually, it's, he has more than one. And chapter 28, in between 27 and 29... So chapter 28 and chapter 31 show us Saul's dilemma and how that plays up. And the author intentionally is breaking up the story to do what he has been doing this whole book once he picked up David and Saul's life, is to show what God will do with David and Saul. So as we read, as we look through these chapters, we're going to go through them in order, 27 through 31, but I don't want you to think this is happening chronologically. The author is making an argument to us. He is comparing and placing side by side David and Saul. He is showing their dilemmas and how they respond to their dilemmas. Think of it as an intentional framing by the author to ultimately show the faithfulness of God, which is right in line with the argument that I'm going to try and set before us this morning. And it's going to be right up here on the screen. God's faithfulness extends beyond our failings. God's faithfulness extends beyond our failings. We're going to see how this begins by looking at starting in chapter 27, going all the way to chapter 28, verse 2. And if you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 236. 236 in the Pew Bible. As I've said before, it's helpful if you keep your Bible open because there's a lot of text we're going to cover and we're not going to read every verse and we're going to kind of keep moving throughout this sermon because nobody wants to be in here until one o'clock listening to me droll on, okay? All right, so God's faithfulness extends beyond our failings, which leads, it's going to begin with dilemma number one. Dilemma number one, at home with your enemies. All right, let's look at chapter 27, verses 1 through 4. But David thought to himself, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. All right, this, this chapter starts with the word but, which is tying us to the section before it. And if you remember what just happened in chapters 24 through 26, is we saw David set in three different situations where he had to trust God. Even though Saul had been delivered twice into David's hands, David resisted the temptation to lay his hand on the Lord's anointed, trusting that God would take care of David's enemies. So if we read now in 27 that David has fled 
Israel, it, it appears like David has just done a 180. Twice, David had prevailed over Saul. But now David, even David, is getting worn down from all the fleeing, all the time spent running. So we're told David takes counsel with himself and decides to flee again to the Philistines. If, if you remember earlier in the book of Samuel, David fled to Gath, stood before the king of Achish, and pretends to be crazy because he realizes they're going to kill him. Well, now David comes back to Achish, except this time David comes not alone, but with a couple thousand people. You know, what's interesting about this section is the scriptures don't condemn David for the move. But following the flow of the story, it's not what we'd expect. We expected David to stay in Israel. We expected David to continue trusting God. What, what happened? Why did he flee? And I think this section and what we're going to see the follow, it's, just, it's a good reminder for us that the scriptures are not written as a type of hagiography. Right? The scriptures are not trying to paint David in the best possible light. The scriptures are revealing to us who David is as history shows him to be. He's a man of God that God uses mightily, but David wasn't always consistent. He's a man after God's own heart, but David makes big mistakes. It's, it's easy to only remember the incident with David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel, and yet even here we see the shortcomings of David. But what we will also see is that God will remain, remain faithful to him. And, and I hope that is an encouragement to us. That David wasn't this perfect man who made only one mistake, but David made many mistakes in his life. And fleeing from Israel, fleeing from Saul to the land of Gath is just one of them, one of those reminders that David is just a man that God used mightily, even though David had many failures. And, and the Lord is also faithful to us, though we have many failures. Okay, so David and his men are in the country, are in the, with the Philistines, they're in Gath. And what we see in this chapter is that they win favor with Achish. He, he makes himself a home in Ziklag. And, and Ziklag is, is kind of west of the southern territory of Judah. And what we see is that the way that they win favor with, with Achish is it's very interesting. But it's also what gets David into a significant dilemma. Let's look at verses 8 through 12. Of chapter 27. Now David and his men went up and raided the Gishurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these peoples had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels, and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked, Where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremiel, or against the Negev of the Kenites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. All right, so notice what David and his men do. They're fighting the enemies of Israel, and in doing so, they leave no survivors. They are, David is actually clearing out the land of Judah. He is, he is continuing the work that had been left undone, and yet he's doing it from enemy territory. 
And, and whenever Achish would inquire of the raids that David was making, David re- just rather coyly references land and not people. And, and it tells us that David left no witnesses so that they wouldn't rat David out with his new Philistine friend. And this really seems to be working well for David and, and, until it isn't. Look, at, look back at your Bible. Look at 28, 1 through 2. Chapter 28, 1 through 2. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, You must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. David said, Then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Achish replied, Very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life. With the Philistines gathering to fight the Israelites, Achish sees it fit to bring David and his men along as well to give David a very high-ranking position in his military, permanent bodyguard. And, and you just have to appreciate the irony that is here. Is David, the man who had removed the head of Goliath, was now tasked to pr- protect the head of Goliath's king. David's at home with his enemies, but he's in the wrong home. And the question that's being asked for us is, what is David going to do? He has no interest in fighting the Israelites. It's, it's been made clear that he's been fighting Israel's enemies, fooling the king. But he finds himself in a position where he is charged to protect the head of the Israelites' enemy. And we're just dying for a solution at this moment. But here's where our author just is having fun with us. Because rather than offering a solution, the author just changes scene. It's like, okay, pause, let's, let's now turn and look at another issue. So the author immediately changes the scene and looks at a different king. He looks at the current king of Israel. Okay, so we're still, we still have dilemma number one. It's not been solved, but now we're given dilemma number two, lost with no God. All right, we're turning our attention to Saul. Let's look at verses, in chapter 28, verses 3 through 7. Now Samuel was dead. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium. So I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. Okay, so immediately we're reminded of an event that we were told about in chapter 25. The prophet Samuel was dead, and the people were mourning the death of Samuel. But we're also given some more information. Saul had removed all the mediums and spiritists from the land. Which Saul was just doing, that was just a normal act of the kings as laid out in the book of Deuteronomy. And we're quickly told, we quickly come to understand why the author gave us that odd piece of information. Because Saul, upon seeing the amassing Philistine army, his heart is gripped with fear. And with his back against the wall, Saul first tries to inquire of the Lord. But we're told the Lord didn't answer. The author gives us all the ways the Lord didn't answer. Not by dreams, not by the Urim, which which we actually know is with David and, and Abiathar. And not by the prophets. Saul was alone. And now the dilemma. 
trust the Lord that we had not answer, or seek answers from forbidden sources. And, and, and no surprise to us, Saul seeks a forbidden source. Saul seeks a medium. And we just need to read what happened with Saul and the medium in chapter 28, verses 8 through 19. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes. And at night, he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives. You will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel. And he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. The first detail we're given is that it's night. A detail I think that's meant to emphasize the darkness in which Saul must move. He needs the cover of night to to look for light. And Saul seeks the insights of a medium and and swears her protection. And and we're not sure why she trusts Saul, especially because she didn't recognize him. But whatever is said works to calm her fears, and she begins to fulfill Saul's request. And and I just think this is where the story gets so weird for us who live uh, in this post-enlightenment section of the Western world. Because whatever the medium does, it works. The the text doesn't say what we might expect it to say. The medium deceived Saul and said that she could see Samuel and spoke on his behalf. No, actually, it says that it worked. Samuel comes and he appears in some type of form. He's lucid. He's aware of his surroundings. And Saul presents his case to Samuel. And Samuel responds with the type of chilling words full of judgment that he once once gave to Eli. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Tomorrow, both you and your sons will die. Now, this is a difficult section for many reasons. But I think one way to understand this is to recognize Friends, there is a spiritual realm, and it is dangerous to try and manipulate it. 
you know, mediums and spiritists, the, the practice of the occult, it's not something that was just in biblical times. A, a quick search on Google will lead you to many psychics and mediums uh, that, that are still a lucrative way to make a living. They're also a place that Christians should not go near. We don't even need to get into whether it's all a scam or not. I, I think our text disabuses us of that reality and emphasizes that we shouldn't treat the supernatural lightly. You know, I, I think the same goes for, for horoscopes, for tarot cards, for Ouija boards, seances, anything that would be considered an occultic practice. Christians, we should not dabble in those. The book of Deuteronomy has really the clearest condemnations of these practices. And, and there's nothing in the New Testament that gives us freedom to engage in these activities. And what, what we actually see is the opposite. Acts 19, 18 through 19 tells us of the conversion in Ephesus. And here's what happened when those pagans were converted in Ephesus. Many of, it says, Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. And a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. See, when people are one to Christ, they, they, they turn from the occultic practices. And so the occult is condemned clearly and thoroughly in Scripture. I think John Piper says it best, God opposes our involvement in the occult because it belittles God and it exalts man. See, the question presented for us is, are we willing to humble ourselves and entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good? Or will we be a people who try and manipulate our understanding of the future by trying to interpret the stars or, or, or read the tea leaves, as it said? See, we're called to seek the Lord in his counsel, to trust in his wisdom. Saul is thoroughly condemned for these actions not just in this section of Scripture, but, but First Chronicles, which is somewhat of a retelling of what happened here. First Chronicles 10.13 speaks of Saul, saying that Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. And, and what did that unfaithfulness look like? Well, he did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. Now, if, if you're remembering that long section I've read, Saul did inquire of the Lord, but, but what the chronicler is condemning is that Saul was not a faithful servant of God. See, I'm really not worried that many of us are going to go and consult kind of the occultic practices. I think we can, I think we can expand our application of the condemnation of Saul in the way that which he didn't inquire of the Lord. See, because I don't want to marginalize the temptation to, to try and, you know, in, interpret the stars and read horoscopes and, and, and take, take those insights in ways that, that we're not wanting to be patient. What Saul is condemned for is that he only consulted the Lord when it was convenient to him. And, and as one writer put it, God can be sought either single-heartedly or not at all. So we have to ask ourselves, are we seeking the Lord regularly? Or are we only doing it when our back is up against the wall? Only when life is closing in? And, and to be sure, we should consult the Lord in those moments, but, but that is to come from a, a life that seeks the Lord. It's flowing out of the regular practices of our life that, that we are a people who seek the Lord. And the question is, are we living our lives with an ear to the Lord? Or, or, or do we have earmuffs on only to be taken off when things aren't going our way. 
See, Saul lost his kingdom because he disregarded the word of the Lord. And church, the question for us is, is where are we in danger of the same? Where are we in danger of disregarding the word of the Lord and looking for answers in, in external sources? Scriptures are clear, entrust yourself to the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 reminds us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on your own understandings, right? In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. We are called in Scripture to trust not in the things of this world, but to trust in the Lord, to lean on him, to look to him, to give ourselves to him, and he will make our paths straight. He won't make it easy, but he will make it straight. If that's an unsatisfying explanation of what happened with Saul and the medium, I'm happy to nerd out a little more about it another time. But see, what the point that the author is trying to make is that Saul sought to get insight into his dilemma from an external source from the Lord. And what did Saul receive? He just received more confirmation of his own decimation. Saul gets up. You see at the end of this, this chapter, Saul gets up. He, he leaves the medium, and we're told that Saul leaves at night. Just a reminder that the sun had set on Saul's kingdom and that Saul would only see the sun once more. Now, at this point, we've seen two kings, two dilemmas. What we're going to see next is that there will be one king delivered from his enemies. We're going to look next at one God with one deliverance. One God with one deliverance. I'll take us through the end of this book. Let's look at chapter 29, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 29, verses 1 and 2. We're coming back to David. So the Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, and Israel camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. All right, David's dilemma is getting worse. He, he could not so much as refuse to fight as much as he could engage in the fighting. See, and Achish was convinced that David was ready to fight for him. Well, David clearly needed an exit. But, but here they are, stuck marching towards a battle. They absolutely couldn't fight. D- David needed an intervention to help keep him in Achish's favor. You see, interestingly, we're not told what David was thinking in this moment. However, we are given insight into the minds of the Philistine commanders. The, the, the Philistine commanders converse with one another. They're looking at their army. They're preparing for battle. And they, they look and they say, what, what about these Hebrews? They know who David is. And, and they have no desire to see David fight with them and march with them into battle. Look at 29 verse 5. They even sing David's song. They, they ask, isn't this the David they sang about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands, tens of thousands. They don't want David fighting with them. They tell Achish, he cannot fight with us. And David keeps up his act. He pleads his case before Achish, but the decision has already been made. David and his men must leave at first light and return to Ziklag. They must go back down south, return to the land they had been given to stay in. And and friends, this section just shows how amazing God is and how God is always at work. Because there are times of clear deliverance. 
there are times when we clearly see God's hand interceding. This is one of those sections you have to read between the lines. You have to squint a little bit to see what God is doing. And isn't that often how God works? The thousands of ways in which God works. He is delivering us from trials. He is helping us in ways that we never even see, that, that we never even seem to understand. See, this is one of those moments that we can miss so easily. David absolutely couldn't engage in battle against the Israelite army. No king of Israel could be king of Israel and kill his own people. Well, Saul has proven that one untrue, but a good king of Israel cannot kill his own people. But neither does it appear that David had any desire to literally backstab the Philistine army. It was not quite honorable of a way to, to live. David needed deliverance that couldn't come from his own hands, and God provided that deliverance. Friends, there's no limit to how God delivers us in this life. As one writer put it, God not only prepares a table for us with our enemies, but God has a knack of having our enemies prepare the table for us. You know, I wonder what a survey of your own life would uncover. Where has God delivered you from difficult situations in ways that were totally surprising, in ways that you never would have seen coming? See, it's worth reflecting on and reminding ourselves that God has thousands of ways in which he provides for us, and they all point back to him. You know, we see in chapter 29 that David is delivered from his enemies by the hands of his enemies. But unfortunately, and what we come to expect from David, his dilemmas aren't yet done. In one sense, David has been delivered out of the frying pan and into the fire. Let's see how David is delivered into the fire in, verse in chapter 30, reading verses 1 through 6. Chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. David and his men reached, reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. So the men returning to Ziklag probably expected they get to go home, kick their feet up and relax. But what we know is that they're coming home to a desperate situation. Ziklag has been attacked and burned. All their wives, sons, and daughters have been carried away, and grief takes over. And, and honestly, we just have to have a little bit of sympathy for David. It just seems like he can't win. Things keep going from bad to worse for him. Not only have, have his wives been taken, but now the men were preparing to stone him. But then we're given this little detail in verse 6. David found strength in the Lord, his God. The text doesn't tell us what David said to himself. However, it's meant to be a reminder of an earlier time in the book of 1 Samuel when David was strengthened in God. 
in chapter 23, we're told that Jonathan, Saul's son, went to David and helped him find strength in God. This is what Jonathan said to David that helped David find strength in God. Don't be afraid, Jonathan said. My father Saul Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. See, what David reminded himself of when, when life was crumbling was God's promises to him, that he would one day be king in Israel. He knew that he would find success wherever he went because he trusted God's promises to make him king of Israel. You know, David didn't have a Jonathan in that moment. David had to find the strength in the Lord to preach truth to himself. And honestly, preaching truth to yourself is an activity that, that not only did David need to have, but, but actually something that we need to be doing. And, and not just any truth, but, but gospel truth. You see, most of us, we don't need external enemies to threaten us. We don't need others to, to get us down because our worst enemy looks back at us in the mirror every single day. We're very good at condemning ourselves. We often condemn ourselves for, for not working as hard as we think we should, for, for not being as successful as we want to be, for not making as much money as we desire to make, for, for not growing in godliness like we should. We're not as attractive as we want to be. We're not as good a friend as we thought. We're not as kind. We're not as loyal, not as fast, not as popular not as fun, not as smart. Honestly, all those things might have some truth in them. But because of the death of Christ, we've died to the enemies of our heart. Our enemy, ourselves, condemn us. And yet, friends, because of Christ, we have died to those condemnations. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans 6, 4 through 6. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And it's this truth that we must preach to ourselves when we're tempted to condemn ourselves that we've been buried with Christ and raised with Him, that we've died to our old self. We've, we've died to our sins, which are so good at keeping us down. And now we're defined by our new life in Christ. See, our greatest ally in our fight against self-condemnation is the power of the gospel of Christ, that we don't have to prove anything to anyone because Jesus accomplished it all for us. Now, this doesn't disregard the need to grow in godliness and to live a holy life, but it's a reminder to us that all of our works, all of our efforts mean nothing unless it is, it is grounded and fulfilled in the death of Christ. And see, friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the message that we want you to, to receive. And I'll summarize it in three words, that God saves sinners. 
That's what God does. God saves sinners through the work of Christ who died in your place so that you could have eternal life in Christ. The call of Scripture, the call of the Bible on our lives is to turn from our sin and trust that God is the one who saves sinners. And if you'd like to talk more about that, I'd be happy to talk with you after the service. You can find me. I'll be in the back. What we see is that because David knew how to preach truth to himself, he had a newfound strength. Look again at chapter 30, verses 7 and 8. Chapter 30, verses 7 and 8. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. The the comparison to, to, to David and Saul is clearly there. Saul inquires of the Lord and there's no answer. David inquires of the Lord and receives an answer. So David and his men begin their pursuit. But it, it doesn't appear that they know who had actually raided the land. That they're kind of charging into the dark. But once again, we see God moving in the background, working for David. Just look down a few more verses at 11 through 13. Chapter, chapter 30, verse 11. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. All right, we're going to jump actually down to verse 13. David asked him, who do you belong to? Where do you come from? And he said, I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Carathites, some territory belonging to Judah, and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to him. He led David down, and there they were, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. I mean, this is an incredible story. David, and and what we know is David only had 400 men that he was going into battle with. And it appears to be some clear type of route. If you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, it's like every single one of them was Legolas. I mean, they just could not be touched. We, we, it doesn't seem like one of the men died. And they kill so many Amalekites. They decimate the whole army that only 400 men flee in camels, which is to say there must have been thousands. It took them day almost to the next evening to, to finish this battle. And it's all because of one man, not David. It's because of the man who led them to the Amalekites. It's amazing. God brings a slave who's abandoned to death to lead David and his men to the Amalekites so that they could slaughter them and retrieve back their people. If you're not familiar with Scripture, it can be kind of unsettling seeing a story like this unfold. And again, the scripture is not trying to make an apology for what is happening here. 
it is clearly setting out that justice has been accomplished through David against these people. We can talk more about slaughtering of God's enemies at another point. But what scriptures are trying to show is that God remained faithful to David. That all of their possessions were recovered. You know, the argument that I laid out in the beginning of this sermon could really be the argument for all of the book of Samuel. God's faithfulness extends beyond our failings. You can see it so clearly in David's life. He failed over and over again, and yet God remained faithful to his future king. In church, amid our failings, God remains faithful to us as well. Over and over again we fail, but we can strengthen ourselves in the Lord and remember that just as God never forgot his promise to David, so he also won't forget his promise to us. We have one God who has delivered one king from his dilemma. But as we know, there was a second king who also faced a dilemma. And the book of 1 Samuel ends by revealing his fate. We're going to read about it in chapter 31, verses 1 through 6. Let's see what happens to the other king. Chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all of his men died together that same day. There's not a whole lot left that the writer has left to say. It's an inglorious ending for the king of Israel. Struck by an arrow from the enemy, refused to be killed by his armor bearer, falling on his own sword. Friends, this was no death fit for a king. It was a death fit for a tyrant. And as Hannah's song that was read earlier from 1 Samuel 2 instructs us, He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And as I said in the first sermon on 1 Samuel, all the way back earlier in the year, this song in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is the theme of both First and Second Samuel. All throughout these books, God is guarding the feet of his faithful servants, and he is also breaking those who oppose him. God has guarded the feet of David. He has exalted his horn and strengthened him. And he has broken Saul, the one who opposed the Lord. He has silenced him in the darkness of battle. Saul's reign has come to an end, and the reign of David is about to begin. Friends, the book of 1 Samuel has this echo, long live the new king of Israel, and long live the king over creation 
who guards the feet of his faithful servants. Because that God remains faithful to us even when we fail. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your faithfulness. Lord, that even as we fail to uphold your word, Lord, to, to, be, to be faithful, Lord, you remain faithful to us. And Lord, the song that we sing in our hearts is knowing that, Lord, you guard the feet of your faithful ones and that you, Lord, will keep us. Lord, you will keep us near yourself. And where we fail, you are there for us. God, help us to be a people who walk in the faithfulness of our God. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.